You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Susan from NBC. Of course. How are you? Fine. Good and, to see uh, you. This is Kramer. Hello. I see. <laughs> All right. Go ahead, Susan. Tell him. Tell me what? Well, I... Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me one second. Hello? Hi. Would you be interested in switching over to TMI long-distance service? Oh, gee. I, I can't talk right now. Why don't you give me your home number and I'll call you later? Uh, well, I'm sorry. We're not allowed to do that. Oh, I guess you don't want people calling you at home. No. Well, now you know how I feel. Jerry Seinfeld's offer to call a telemarketer back at his home resonated with viewers and was the inspiration for the Seinfeld bill cracking down on telemarketers in New Jersey. Unwanted calls, including robocalls, are the top consumer complaint with the Federal Communications Commission. But even putting your name on the national do not call registry doesn't seem to stop them. And so attorneys general in almost every state and D.C. have joined together in a lawsuit against a telecom company accused of making more than seven and a half billion robocalls to people on the do not call list. The company Avid Telecom also allegedly sent or transmitted robocalls involving scams, including social security scams, Medicare scams, Amazon scams, credit card interest rate reduction scams, and employment scams, among others. Joining me is an expert in consumer litigation, Sean Collins, a partner at Stradling Law. The defendant here, Avid Telecom, is not the company that made the robocalls. Rather, it facilitated them. Explain that difference. That's right. So I don't know if you've had a chance to read through the complaint, but you'll notice that they use the word facilitate a lot. I mean, it's pretty much every other sentence. I would call them the Amazon of robocalling. So they don't sell the product. They're not the people that are actually creating the product. They just facilitate the transaction. So if you want to be really specific, Avid is a voice over Internet protocol. So they're kind of like the train tracks or the train station. They route the train, but they don't know the final destination and they don't know the original, or at least that's what they claim. Now, that's the interesting part about the lawsuit is that these 51 attorneys general are now saying, you do know who's routing. You know the intent of these calls. You know that you're doing business with people who are illegally calling people on the do not call list. 
you know that you are helping people violate the telemarketing sales rule, the TCPA, and a lot of other state mini FTC acts. And because you have knowledge of that and because you are facilitating that, we're going to charge you with violating these statutes. That's what makes this lawsuit very interesting. They could allegedly spoof the area codes of their calls to match those of the recipients, which makes it more likely they'd pick up. Explain the technology they had. Yeah, so I'm not even going to pretend that I am a technology expert. But from what I understand, from what I read in the complaint, and also just my expertise in this area of the law, as I understand it, they have created proprietary technology whereby they can help a company mask the fact that their call is a telemarketing call or a robocall. For example, you know, I get them a lot. So I have a 949 area code. So if I see an area code that's not 949, like most people, I just let it go to voicemail. And I'm like, okay, if it's important, I'll leave me a voicemail and I'll call it right back. But if I see a 949 number show up on my cell phone, I'm more likely to think, all right, this could be my wife calling from an unknown number. This could be one of my children calling from an unknown number. This could be my children's school. So I'm going to answer it. And when I do, now your chances of selling me something have increased. Clearly, this company, Avid, is aware of that. And so if they want to be the primary voice over Internet protocol provider in the market, they could say, hey, I can increase the chances that somebody will pick up your telemarketing call. What telemarketer wouldn't like to hear that? They said, well, we have this technology that can spoof or mask the true identity of your call and make it seem like it's somebody's husband, wife, child, school calling, and they're more likely to pick up your phone call. So that's the type of technology they're using. They basically are using a generic auto dialer, but the technology is able to create a area code on that phone number that makes it more likely the person would pick up the phone. And the attorneys general also allege that Avid was well aware that it was transmitting illegal robocalls. It got hundreds of traceback notifications, complaints from other telecom providers and phone companies. Verizon ended up blocking Avid's traffic entirely because of, quote, unacceptable levels of illegal or unwanted robocalls. And that's the crux of the lawsuit. So, you know, the reality of it is when you look at the actual count that they're bringing against Avid, a lot of them are going to be difficult because the way these laws were drafted, the telemarketing sales rule, the TCPA, and all of the state variants of that, the way they were drafted is they were designed to go after the person, the telemarketer, the person that's actually making the call. And so the tough thing that they're going to have to do is they're now going to have to prove that you are responsible even if you are a facilitator. Now, one of the interesting statutes that they're bringing and this is where I think is the bedrock of the government case. They're saying that the statute prohibits persons from providing substantial assistance or support to any seller or telemarketer. So they're saying that Avid is providing substantial assistance or support to these people who are making these illegal robocalls. Now, even that's going to be challenging because typically when you're trying to prove substantial assistance or support, you're saying that these people are coordinating together. I think of the analogy of radar and the car. So if I create a radar and I sell it to someone, I don't know the car driver that buys my radar. I'm not intentionally trying to say, hey, when you go out on the five freeway in California, be aware because there's a cop there, so make sure your radar is on. I don't know when he's going to use it or how he's going to use it. I'm just selling him the technology. 
So I would argue that I'm not providing substantial assistance or support to that particular driver. I'm just selling him my technology. And I would assume that that's the defense that Avid is probably going to make. Yeah, Avid said it's done nothing wrong and it operates in a manner that's compliant with all applicable state and federal laws and regulations. Why didn't the FCC go after Avid? They went after some of their customers. I would imagine that they did not go after them because, like I say, they have taken up this very unique position whereby they really are only a junction station. They're just routing trains. At least that's how they see themselves. Again, they're saying, I don't know the final destination. I don't even know the origination sometimes. And there's nothing wrong with me being a facilitator. Because, you know, the tough thing is, is when you look at the big bodies of law that govern this area, the FTC Act, Telephone Consumer Protection Act, the Telemarketing Sales Rule, what they really focus on is do not call registries. And in particular, what they really focused on is, do you have the buzzwords or the express consent of these people to call them? Abbott is saying, I have no personal relationship with any of the phone numbers that you're calling. I don't know these people. I didn't help you get their phone number or any of that. I'm just helping you route your calls, and I'm trying to help you increase the likelihood that when you call somebody that you would like to sell a product to, that they'll answer your phone call. And so Abbott is saying, look, I don't have to maintain a do not call list, and whether or not somebody's on the do not call list is not my problem. That's my customer's problem, not my problem. Look, they're threading the needle on this one. I mean, as a consumer protection lawyer, I find it a very interesting argument. Could this lawsuit end up being important in consumer law? Look, it's very rare that this many states aggregate to bring a lawsuit against one company. Doesn't happen very often. You know, I worked on the, one of the last times this happened at DirecTV. So we have 48 states bring a lawsuit against DirecTV back then. And typically when it happens, it's because of some novel issue that's not well-settled law. It's not a slam dunk by any means. And so I think everybody should be paying attention to this because it's going to have big ramifications for people who believe that they are operating within the boundaries of the law. Abbott believes that they're operating within the boundaries of the law. We'll keep track of it. Thanks so much, Sean. That's Sean Collins of Stradling Law. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, Top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Shelley Fitzgerald, a gay guidance counselor at a Catholic high school, was fired over her same-sex marriage. And she's trying to convince the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals to reverse a ruling that she was a minister. Roncalli High School relied on a legal doctrine called the ministerial exception, which exempts religious entities from anti-discrimination laws when employees perform or are involved in religious duties. Here's Joseph Davis, the school's attorney. It is a religious practice or observance, as Judge Easterbrook pointed out in Starkey, in the Catholic Church to avoid same-sex marriage, 
And it's undisputed that the plaintiff here does not adhere to that religious practice or observance. Judge Joe Flom pressed him on the school's position. So I just want to be clear on what it is that she has done in her role to deviate from the mission of the church or the school, Uh, other than her status, her sexual orientation. uh, Not her status, Your Honor, entering into a relationship that's contrary to the teachings of the Catholic Church. And Fitzgerald's attorney, Gabriella Heibel, said the guidance counselor didn't perform any religious functions at the school. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the guidance department, where the school explicitly told teachers, if students have religious questions, send them to the priests, send them to religion teachers. If students have academic questions, send them over to the, to the guidance department. Their, their job, their responsibilities are about getting students into college, not about providing them any spiritual support. Adding to the mix here, less than a year ago, the Seventh Circuit decided another case involving the same high school firing a former gay co-worker of Fitzgerald's and decided in favor of the high school. Joining me is Sachin Pandya, a professor of law at the University of Connecticut. Begin by telling us a little about the history of this Catholic high school as far as gay counselors, because it's been here before. Yes. So... This particular case is unusual in that there is a prior lawsuit involving a different plaintiff in which the same argument was made. There's the Title VII claim. The school claimed that there was a ministerial exception because the person was functioning as a minister. The case was litigated all the way to the Seventh Circuit. The case is called Starkey. And in that case, the Seventh Circuit found in favor of the school. So one of the arguments in this case is that the Seventh Circuit ruling in Starkey should affect the decision in favor of affirming the court below's judgment that the ministerial exception should apply. And the plaintiffs, of course, say, look, even though it was the same school, we've got a different plaintiff, a different set of facts, different kinds of work circumstances. And because a reasonable jury could go either way on the question of whether or not this plaintiff was sufficiently acting as a minister for purposes of the exception, the lower court messed up when they granted summary judgment. We should have a trial and let a jury decide that issue in dispute one way or the other. This is about the ministerial exception to Title VII. Explain what that is. Sure. So the ministerial exception in Title VII doesn't appear in the text of Title VII itself. Rather, it arises from the idea that certain kinds of employers, particularly churches or other religious organizations, have a legal right under the religion clauses of the First Amendment to decide who they're going to have as a minister or minister equivalent, and where there's a clash between Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the authority of the religious employer to decide who they want to appoint as minister, to minister to their to their uh, congregation or their parishioners or what have you, that's the basis for the ministerial exception. So it's a constitutionally based exception, not a statutory based exception, which has as its main goal protecting the autonomy of religious organizations to decide who they can appoint or reject as a minister. So one of the questions at the oral arguments was how much of what a worker does needs to be religious for them to be deemed a minister. And in this case, 
there was a factual question about whether she actually performed religious duties. Yeah, so that precise issue is what's in dispute. Whether or not there's enough of a factual dispute about whether what this plaintiff did was religious in nature, that she ought to be treated as a minister for purposes of this exception. The plaintiffs say, yeah, and therefore you should let a jury decide that issue. We should have a trial. The defendant says, no, a reasonable jury could only go one way on that based upon the evidence in the record thus far, and that is she was acting functionally as a minister, and therefore you don't need a trial. And so that's the key dispute. The Supreme Court doctrine in this area doesn't have a hard and fast rule about who qualifies as a minister. Rather, they've pointed to a set of factors that the courts must consider, and they've emphasized again and again the label of minister isn't dispositive. Rather, the focus is on what you do and the expectations about what you do and what you're supposed to do in the job. This is why you might think of somebody as a traditional minister who might preach on a Sunday, for example. But Supreme Court case law has also identified people in religious schools who provide some form of religious instruction as qualifying for the ministerial exception as well. It's a very fact-intensive inquiry. And so for that reason, it matters a great deal whether or not there is indeed a bona fide factual dispute about whether what she did in her job was religious enough. She signed a ministerial contract after she worked there for more than 14 years. She claims it was a pretext for sex bias. How important is the contract that she signed? Well, so that's the thing. The defendant wants to emphasize that contract as a very important piece of evidence, so important that it should decide the matter. The plaintiff wants to say, no, you need to take that in context of all the different things that this plaintiff did. The contract itself shouldn't decide the matter once and for all. It's not dispositive. And so in that way, they're fighting over the amount of weight that judges should give to all these pieces of evidence to decide whether or not there's enough of a factual dispute to have a jury take a crack at that question. So the guidance counselor here was fired after the school discovered that she was married to another woman. That would be barred by law if she worked at a public high school. So explain the sort of legal tension here over the ministerial exception denying her anti-discrimination protection. There are many ways in which both the statute itself as well as the statute and constitutional law try and reconcile this pretty durable tension between, on the one hand, the public policy against employment discrimination, and on the other hand, providing enough protections for churches and other types of religious organizations to decide internally what they want to do in order to shape their own religious mission. The ministerial exception, which we've been talking about, is really focused on religious organizations. And by religious organization, the paradigm case is a church, right? If you're a religiously affiliated nonprofit, such as Catholic Charities, that's not the classic case. However, Title VII itself contains its own statutory exception which provides that if you're a religious organization or a religiously affiliated school and you are motivated to act consistent with 
different faith than I am. Title VII allows you to do that. The tricky part here is, in this example, you can characterize the firing in two ways. One way of characterizing the firing is it's sex discrimination, because the Supreme Court has held since Bostock that if you fire somebody because they're gay, that qualifies as some sex discrimination within the meaning of the statute. On the other hand, if you characterize it as, no, it's not sex discrimination, we realize that this person was acting inconsistent with the Catholic faith, and we require people to act consistent with the Catholic faith, and therefore we're practicing a kind of permitted religious discrimination. And so you can see how we're really trying to thread a needle between, on the one hand, honoring the anti-discrimination norms of Title VII, but at the same time, allowing churches and religious organizations to make sure that people of the same faith are the ones that are involved in the day-to-day practices consistent with their religious mission. Have the courts, and the Supreme Court in particular, been expanding the ministerial exception over the years? So the ministerial exception was recognized for a very long time in the lower courts. It wasn't until 2012 in a case called Hosanna Tabor that the Supreme Court announced for the first time that there was a ministerial exception. Since then, in the handful of cases in which the Supreme Court has taken up the issue, they have been expanding it. The most recent case is a case called Our Lady of Guadalupe, in which the court there applied the ministerial exception to teachers who weren't, strictly speaking, even by their own account, ministers in the classic sense. But the Supreme Court emphasized that the ministerial exception doesn't turn on this label minister and that the teachers in those cases had enough in the way of religious instruction that they would qualify for the ministerial exception. When you look at this case, do you think that the Catholic school has a better argument or the guidance counselor? I must say that it's a hard question to answer. I don't have a firm view about it because this isn't a case which turns on a simple clash of values. This is a case that turns on some pretty complicated issues of fact. How did they actually treat her in the years that she worked there? What were the things that she was and wasn't expected to do? How much weight should we put on, for example, the contract terms that the defendant emphasizes versus the evidence of the kinds of tasks that she was asked to perform over the course of her time there? And those questions are typically ones that juries sort out, but in this case, the trial judge said, no, I think that we don't need a jury to do this. We can rule on summary judgment. And so to that end, it kind of depends on how much weight you put on certain facts and pieces of evidence. And I don't have a very firm sense of that uh, to have a strong opinion about it. It's going to be very interesting to see how this panel of judges at the Seventh Circuit decides this second case against Roncalli High School. Thanks so much for being on the show. That's Professor Sachin Pandya of the University of Connecticut Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com podcast law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? 
and where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.